This is Talking Animals on WMNF. My guest today is Dr. Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. Beckoff has published 31 books. I know. We'll probably discuss his issues with laziness and self-discipline. Uh, and much of his research over the years has landed in the areas of animal behavior, animal emotions, compassionate conservation, and animal protection. He has worked closely with Jane Goodall, and that long string of books he's published includes those he's written about her and written with her. Beckoff's current research focuses on how various animals play and the rules that apparently must be followed in that play. Dr. Beckoff will be a speaker at the Farmed Animal Conference eSummit, a virtual conference running August 3 through 9. Access to the conference is ticketless. The registration is required. We'll discuss many of these things when I speak with Dr. Mark Beckoff in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A quick programming note, I'll be hosting a music show later today, sitting in for Scott Elliott on the All Souls edition of It's the the music starting at 2 p.m. right here on WMNF and streaming live on WMNF.org. If you're able to join me then, please do. Meanwhile, later in this program, I'll speak with Rob Whitehair, CEO and co-founder of Mammals, a new app that enables you to use your smartphone to become a nature photographer or videographer who can share your images with like-minded folks anywhere and they with you. Right now, though, let's get into a slew of topics with Dr. Beckoff with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org, texting 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five. This is Dr. Mark Beckoff on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Beckoff. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. So delighted to be speaking with you. Although between your books, the research, the articles, the lectures, including one you'll be delivering in just a few days that we alluded to, we'll probably need several hours to cover everything, but we'll just cover what we can. And sort of partly for that reason, I thought we'd actually start with some of your most current research and maybe work our way backwards to some other topics that I'm sure we'll probably skip around. So although your current research involves the way various animals play and I gather the rules that govern that play. This is actually a long-standing area of interest of yours. So what first got you interested in this topic of animal play? Um, excuse me, I have an allergy out here. Um, one second. No problem. Okay. <clears throat> I'm fine. I'm allergic to pine pollen. Um, <clears throat> well, when I started watching animals years ago, um, a lot of people thought that play was a wastebasket um, into which you threw like activities that you couldn't make sense of. Because when animals play, you know, think of dogs, they look like they're fighting, they look like they're trying to eat another animal, they look like they're trying to mate with another animal. But really, there's a, um, there's a rhyme, if you will, and a rhythm to the dance of play. And what I learned was that animals do different things when they play, you know, it looks like they're fighting, they're mating, they're... Um, trying to dominate another animal. But really, there's some really distinct rules to the play, and I call them the golden rules of play. And when I talk to people at dog parks about this, most of them go, oh, yeah, of course, because when dogs play and when other animals play, you know, people sometimes get afraid, oh, they're going to fight. It's going to escalate into a fight. 
And it's very rare. In fact, studies show that it's only about 1% of the time. So that kind of research has been really um, in the forefront for me because it also applies to humans. So I have school psychologists and people who study developmental psychology want to know what we can learn about humans from the way in which non-human animals play. Yeah. So first of all, let's back up for just one sec. So what are some distinctions that may or may not be as obvious to all of us if we haven't studied this the way you have to when it is actual play and when it is one of those other things that may have kind of more significant or dramatic consequences? What are some traits or things that help distinguish those along the way? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, (laughs) there's play signals. So um, if I wanted to play with you when we were dogs, I would do what we call a play bow. I crouch on my forelimbs, put my hind end up in the air, maybe wag my tail and bark. Mm-hmm. And so that would be an invitation I want to play. And what we learned, and it was, it took years to look at um, frame by frame films of dogs and other animals playing is if I was going to jump on you and bite you hard, I would precede it with a play bow as if to say, hey, look, you know, I'm going to bite you and I may bite you a bit hard, but it, but it's still play. And then if I did that without the play bow and I saw you retract from me or run away or, you know, act very submissively or surprised, I do a play bow to say, you know, I was only kidding. That was still play. And a lot of people, you know, go, oh, well, you know, that's how do you know that? But it turns out that there's data from lots of different animals that show that they solicit play using specific signals. And then they do, in a sense apologize and say, forgive me if I beat you too hard or I slammed into you too hard. So the play bow can be retroactive, or in some cases it is then, I guess. Yeah, they, I always say they use play bows to punctuate a play sequence. So, mm-hmm. you know, you and I are playing and all of a sudden I slam into you or I jump on you and you think I'm trying to mate with you or you think I'm trying to push you to the ground and yeah. dominate you. What's this guy up to? Yeah, yeah, what's this guy up to? I thought we agreed yeah. to play. Exactly. Right. You know, so fair play really comes down to my assuring you that what follows is play or what I just did was play, but maybe it wasn't clear to you. And you see it in wild coyotes, which I've studied for years, wild wolves, um, <coughs> bears, foxes, um, non-human primates. And, in fact, human primates. And that's, I think, what attracted some of my work to um, people who teach in um, elementary school or people who work with young kids is that if you watch young kids carefully, uh, they also negotiate play. And, you know, it's it's the fights or the escalations into what looks like might you know something that might be a fight that attracts attention. But like I said, studies of non-humans show that play really escalates maybe 1% of the time. So it sounds like there's parallels, but a moment ago you did mention that from the play, uh, observing the play and researching the play of dogs and, and other coyotes, etc., that has yielded information that's helpful to sort out how humans play. So what have we learned in that way? You said that we see kids and things that were maybe heading to a fight, but it isn't. What are some things that really come out of the animal play thing that help us better understand human behavior that way? Well, one would be that they learn to resolve conflict, that, you know, they're playing and something happens and it looks like it's going to be a conflict. So they learn to understand what is and isn't, say, potentially a really a real serious conflict. And then they resolve it by doing something like a play bow or um, a vocalization, for example. And that's how kids learn to do it, too. I mean, you know, when I, I haven't really studied 
young kids in detail, but when I was doing my degree years ago, there was a guy studying play in um, school, school playgrounds, mm -hmm. and he found the same rules of play. The other is, it turns out that in some animals, if you don't give them that opportunity to engage in rough and tumble play, they show less resilience later on because, you know, I, I guess cutting through the chase, they're not quite sure what's going on and they get really scared. Um, but the bottom line and the one explanation for play that seems to explain the evolution of play in numerous mammals, some birds include, and you know, mammals including humans is that it trains um, individuals for the unexpected because like I said, one of the markers of play would be you'll see a bite, then you'll see a bow, then you'll see a slam, then you'll see a mount, then you'll see a face paw, then you may hear a vocalization. And it gets the uh, animals who are playing used to unexpected sequences mm. of behavior. Yeah. You know, that may sound academic to some people, but the fact is life in the wild presents itself with a lot of unexpected situations, um, you know, where individuals have to adapt. And the thought is that they learn this through play. And um, and I find those, I find that explanation to be very compelling across species. Yeah, because it really sounds like they have a broader sphere of experience, and so when something happens later or another time, they're not shaken by it, or like, oh my god, I'm just immobilized because I don't know what to do, because they've probably experienced that or something very similar before, so they say, oh, well, this is what I did last time, and it seemed to work okay. No, exactly, because they don't have a human, like, you know, you hope your companion dogs and other companion animals have a dedicated and loving human who may step in and help resolve something. So you're right. Um, I think the thing that people, a lot of people don't realize, although when I say it, it's obvious, is that life in the wild can be tough. And play is kind of a luxury because when animals are stressed, if they're um, scared of intruders or there's a predator around or they don't have enough food, the one activity that seems to drop out of their repertoire is play. So you can use play as a marker that things are okay. You know, they're more relaxed and their their basic needs are satisfied. And then when they play, they acquire the skills to learn how to adapt to situations that surprise them or, or, or are challenging. Yeah, you, you got it right on the head. <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple things. One, what would be sort of an equivalent with kids, uh, school school kids, where there's a maybe a little bit of a conflict brewing, whatever? What would be the equivalent to a play bow there that indicates, hey, everything's going to be okay or I didn't really mean anything? <laughs> Well, that's a good question. I mean, non-human primates, including a lot of the great apes, have a play face, that kind of a relaxed mouth, and sometimes there's <clears throat> a play vocalization like, <laughs> um, so that might be something. It, it also, um, there's an approach, primatologists call it gamboling. It's this loose approach where, you know, it looks like your limbs are held on by rubber bands, and and it's a very relaxed posture and approach. And I actually did a study years ago on the campus here of having um, strangers and familiar people approach one another um, in different styles. One would be like a real rigid, you know, rapid approach where you just kind of look tense. Mm. And another would be sort of this loose scambling approach. And even among strangers, that loose approach um, was really effective in 
dispelling, you know, it's sort of dispelling something that could be uh, potentially interpreted as being aggressive or assertive. Yeah, just because you have that tight, rigid look as opposed to something more casual or informal. And right away, I guess that sends a, a very different kind of message. Oh, no, I- exactly. And and we don't realize it sometimes. I mean, that we're very good at reading those sorts of things. I had an interaction in Boulder a couple of weeks ago with two um, teenagers that kind of bothered me in a sense. They they were walking by, and one of them started approaching me, and it just didn't feel good. Mm. And his friend said, hey, no, no, you know, come back. And I think I read it right, to be honest. I'm not trying to cash out Boulder as a violent town. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, I read it really right. And when his friend called him back, it was like, oh, I read it right. But then again, you know, sometimes you're walking down the street, and you, you feel yourself in a situation that seems threatening, and you, you read the body language, you know, um, I know soci- sociologists and maybe psychologists who have studied human communication say that a huge percentage of communication uh, between humans is nonverbal, which really basically means that we're paying very close attention to visual signals because we're visual animals. And that gets back to what you said, you know, how do animals use play signals when they say, you know, disperse them through a play sequence. And it's because they see, you know, oh, Mary really didn't mean to jump on me or Fido wasn't really being aggressive and wasn't trying to eat me. Yeah. We've got a couple of uh, interesting emails here, one of which sort of combines what we were talking about in an interesting way, I think. It says, you know how dogs can smell fear in us and react from that. Is there anything we could do that would show them I guess, like a play bow to interact with the dog or animal safely if need be. I'm not sure. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, what I was going to relate it to is there's a mouse, a rodent called the bank vole, who lives on the banks of the River Thames in London, and they have a play odor. And it turns out that if you take a Q-tip and you run it across the neck of a playing vole and you put it on the back of a non-playing vole, the non-playing vole will play and other voles think that they want to play. And the reason I love that question is because people say, well, is there a play odor in dog? No one knows. Mm. You know, um, they put out fear odors or what we call pheromones. So that might be another way that dogs and other animals can um, monitor what's going on because they're looking and they're hearing certain things. And then there's an odor that says, well, I don't care what's going on. That's a play or a friendly odor. Yeah. Well, I have a question. That was sort of a cross-species question. I guess I have one that's uh, sort of just a different species altogether you alluded to. But first, I'm going to let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And if you just tuned in, my guest is Dr. Mark Beck. A professor emeritus at the University of Colorado with expertise in such areas as animal behavior, animal emotions, compassionate conservation, and animal protection. He's published some 31 books. If you would like to ask Dr. Beckoff a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So we've been sort of chiefly talking about dogs and or humans, but you mentioned that you've done a fair amount of work with coyotes, so that seems like that would be a different thing because you wouldn't some of the t- stuff that, that you were discussing happens at dog parks or just other kind of more genial encounters that you would have with dogs. What are some of the different ways that the, the play works and fair play works, I guess, with, within the coyote community? Well, it's a very, excuse me, very similar rules, in fact. Mm-hmm. In the field, you know, it's hard to collect as, you know, as, as many data points as in the field, but we, 
were out in um, the Grand Teton National Park years ago. We did an eight-and-a-half-year study of wild coyotes. And, it, in fact, it was watching the coyotes and sometimes the wild wolves that gave us some insights into play. So, for example, when coyotes come out of the den, they're around three weeks of age. They play a lot because they've got their father and their mother and siblings um, and maybe, you know, littermates with whom to play, they're not really responsible for anything. You know, they've got to grow up and develop into card-carrying adult coyotes. Sure. And play is really important. And I had an inkling from studying baby wolves and baby dogs that you would see this fairness across species. And in fact, what it turns out, um, you know, after eight and a half years of doing this, we learned that coyotes who don't play fair say coyotes who say, come on, Duncan, let's play, and then they try to beat you up, for, um, are ignored by other coyotes, and their play invitations aren't honored, and they tend to leave the group. And it turns out from, say, a biological or an evolutionary point of view, the youngsters who leave the group suffer upwards of four times uh, higher mortality. And so as, it, you know, as an evolutionary biologist as well, I'm really interested in how the behavior of individuals ultimately cashes out in terms of whether they go on to mate and reproduce and make more babies. And yeah. so that finding has been verified in only a few species. It was really hard to collect the data, but the bottom line for coyotes, like dogs, would be if you don't want to play, don't bow. You know, if you don't really want to play, don't do a play invitation signals because other members of the group are going to say, oh, Harry or Mary, they cheat when they play and we don't want anything to do with them. Wow. Yeah. So the animal's really ostracized at that point. I'm sorry? So the animal is really ostracized if they are cheating or they're not making their signals clear and then sort of going conflicting uh, signals, I guess, in that regard. So it sounds like they, pretty soon, like, they, hey, I'm not having anything to do with Harry because I can't. Exactly. And, and yeah. what was significant about that is in the animal behavior literature, people would say that when youngsters leave what we call their natal group or when youngsters leave their pack, which often are extended families, um, they're driven out. And no, they're not necessarily driven out. You know, it's, it's kind of like watching kids at a playground. In fact, my friend who studied this um, among kids noticed, you know, sometimes you've just got these loners and it's usually because they or maybe, I don't want to say usually, but often because they don't know how to play. So it's not like other individuals are aggressive and say, get out of here. It's that they can't form these really functional social bonds and are not part of the group and eventually leave. So, yeah, no, you're right on the mark. That that was another finding that some people have, you know, really verified that among humans, it's often people who have no social skills and go on sometimes later to um, be violent um, adult is that they just can't engage in spontaneous social play. So as far as the coyotes, let's say, in your experience and your research, how many instances of unfair play would they be allowed? Like everybody, including a coyote, probably has a bad day. So would they be allowed one or two like, well, Harry seemed like this was going to be cool and playful, but he actually got a little too rough. Or was it like just right away if you do that, you're already starting to be on the outs. And if you do it maybe one or two more times, it's like, hey, this 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 
this isn't working for us? I have no idea. Okay. And that's a, it's a great question because, you know, people wonder how much can these individuals get away with. Yeah. I have a feeling that what's going on, and once again, you see it among kids, but you see it among human adults is, you know, an individual in a group has, the, you know, his or her, her own idiosyncrasies. And sometimes people will say, ah, that's Mark, that's Duncan, that's Mary, that's Jane, that's Peter. And they allow it because they know that that's just part of who they are. Yeah. But... Uh, what happens, and people don't realize this, that, you know, among a lot of wild animals, including coyotes and wolves and foxes, you know, they spend a lot of time doing nothing, if you will, just hanging out. And they pick up a lot of information about individuals just by watching what's going on. So people have suggested that, well, if Harry and Mary are unfair players, they don't have to have an actual interaction with another individual. That individual might just say, oh, yeah, you know, I've watched them play with Duncan, and they don't do really well. Yeah, words out on old Harry. Not, words uh, out yeah. old Harry. Yeah. Right, and, 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 you know, once again, people sometimes go, nah, that's absurd. But no, you know, after you spend, well, I mean, we had teams out there, we had probably 4,000 total hours of observation. You begin to learn individuals, and, of course, Jane Goodall, you know, noticed that in chimpanzees years ago that sure. he watched these animals interact and they all had unique personalities um, and you see those personalities and temperaments in well just about every non-human animal I can think about certainly certainly among the vertebrates so with the animal we've come to call Harry if he is ostracized which sounds like is the natural product of the unfair play is there ever a prospect of harry joining another group or once he's shunned from that group and he leaves that group he's just kind of a loner on his own and not really able to to connect with another group yeah i mean we've we had some data on that but once again in the wild it's hard to know you know sure. animals can travel 50 miles in a day yeah but yeah i mean it's it's highly possible and in some ways likely that he may meet another group into which he's accepted or he may meet another individual and form, you know, begin the formation of a new pack of coyotes. And, yeah. you know, it, we, that's been observed in, you know, lone wolves. I mean, wolves are typically more social than coyotes and that may be the way in which um, new packs form. It, these are great questions, and, you know, you, it takes years to collect the data in the field because, number one, you need to identify individuals reliably, and then you need to be able to follow them, um, you know, over the course of time. Yeah. So um, that's a great question. I'm I just trying to skip over the research. I'm just trying <laughs> to see if you can, uh, you know, answer my questions without me actually doing any research. But uh, Oh, no. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good question. Yeah. People are interested in how Packs of animals formed. When the wolves were released into Yellowstone National Park in 95, you know, now, you know, what, 25, no, what is it? Yeah, 25 years later, you know, there's a lot of functional packs there. But at some point, these individuals, some of whom may have known one another and some of whom may not have known one another, um, you know, got together and formed these packs. And we had a really interesting situation in our research since we could identify the individuals. Two individuals from one litter disappeared, and we didn't see them for probably 10 months. And, you know, we had no idea where they went. We had no idea whether they were still alive. And then all of a sudden, like about 10 months later, one of my students was sitting up on this um, hill called Blacktail Butte in the Grand Teton National Park and said, oh my God, there's, you know, basically there's Harry and Jane. 
who were littermates, and there they were. So if they weren't identified, we could have thought they were two unrelated coyotes who met mm. one another and were be, you know, say, beginning to form a pack. Yeah. But they were siblings. Um, in fact, they were littermates, and they had gone somewhere, we have no idea where, and came back to their group. So mm. I always use that as, you know, just sort of an interesting sort of an interesting example of how when you're doing field work, it's not like watching animals in a dog park or cages. And when I studied penguins in Antarctica, it was the same thing. People go, oh, they all look the same. They all behave the same. They don't. And when yeah. you know individuals, you're able to collect, you know, so, those sorts of data that you were talking about is how do they form groups? How do they form mates? And, you know, what do they do when they leave and then come back? Well, that's where those things take a sustained period of time. And pretty soon, researchers like yourself and others can tell those penguins and they say, oh, that's so-and-so and that's so-and-so and this has a squabble yesterday. But I mean, to the casual observer, you're like, well, that's, that penguin looks exactly like the next penguin over. Yep, but, uh, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And, you know, people who do field work know that when, you know, you're asking all the right questions, Duncan, and a lot of times I just feel like, I don't know. And I've had people say, well, you're supposed to be the expert. You should know. And my response is, well, I feel I'm pretty good at what I do. And the more I, the more I know, the more I say I don't know. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so here's something I want to move on to some other stuff, Dr. Beckoff. But, but just before we leave this kind of general topic, are there animals notorious for being unfair players? Like if, it might be more commonplace within a group to sort of play unfairly, and therefore maybe it's more accepted and not as likely then to lead to an animal being ostracized? I don't know. Okay. I, I, you mean, if, if you're talking across species, my best guess is no, because okay. it really comes down to um, individual behavioral uh, yeah. profiles. So, so no. Yeah. I, I'd have to say I don't know of any information that could answer that question one okay. way or the other. Yeah, I just thought it'd be really interesting if for some reason there, there were a certain species where their play was marked by fairly regular unfair play, and yet it somehow didn't cause the kind of reaction that we've been talking about so far, but uh, sounds like that would be un unlikely. Well, you know, some, there are some general trends which are interesting that um, the non-social species, individuals of non-social species or less social species play less, um, and maybe their play is more assertive or aggressive but I am not comfortable making any general sure. statement about that right now. Gotcha. Yeah. So, again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he'll be a speaker at the forthcoming Farmed Animal Conference East Summit, a uh, strictly online symposium. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So, yeah, in fact, let's talk a little bit about the Farmed Animal Conference eSummit. So, again, one of the many byproducts of the COVID-19 era. So this is a conference like you would find in the pre-COVID era, any number of places, uh, annually or otherwise, but this is strictly a virtual uh, conference. So there are a number of speakers uh, slated to present at the, at the C-Summit, including Peter Singer and Il Barnard, uh, Anita Kreins, uh, some guy named Mark Beckoff. So, and I should just say that this, this conference is ticketless, but they do ask you to register. So really, um, if you're interested, you can check it out and just all, all they ask is that you register and then you have full access, as I understand it, to the various speakers and presentations. 
Foundation. So I think you're scheduled to present this coming Tuesday, August 4th, on the topic of farmed animal emotions. Can you give us a little sneak preview of that talk, Dr. Becca? Yeah, I mean, basically the argument, um, you know, or the clear facts are that farmed animals, and I don't like that, or food animals, I don't like calling them that either. You know, um, if they're mammals, then, you know, they're just like your dog or cat. They have rich emotional lives. They don't like being abused and and mistreated on their way to people's mouths. Um, They suffer from anxiety and stress and fear. And, you know, especially those in industrial agriculture have horrific lives. I mean, in the dairy industry, babies are are basically pulled from their moms so that the moms can make more milk. Um, So it's basically, you know, looking at at what these animals experience and who they are. And one of the bottom lines from my um, talk, but I've been saying it for quite a long time, is that the question isn't what's for dinner, it's who's for dinner. And I don't mean that facetiously because animals aren't a what or an it or a that or a which, they're a who. Mm -hmm. The dog who lives with you or the coyote who lives with his friends. And the other thing is, you know, the words we use. I mean, you know, we hamburgers and steak were cows, um, but then with birds, we eat chicken and turkey. I don't, but... um, And so the names we use, you know, pigs are sausage, bacon, and ham. But you don't buy a pig lettuce and tomato sandwich. You buy a babe lettuce and tomato sandwich. And so I'm not trying to be, you know, nasty, and I'm not trying to sort of start a revolution. What I am trying to do is that um, people need to spend a lot more time thinking about who they eat and the lives these animals have had. Yeah, there are certain opportunities, I guess, that lend themselves to that, like of people who have been fortunate enough to visit farm sanctuaries likely have mm. a much better sense of this, uh, just the emotions and feelings that farmed animals generate and you see uh, people hugging cows and hanging out with uh, pigs in ways that otherwise would be uh, completely foreign to them and I think that, that makes that connection. Even uh, icons of sort, online icons like uh, Esther the Wonder Pig yep. uh, <laughs> really, but I mean th- those really bridge those things that you're talking about I think. And uh, Yeah, I mean the, another message is that you know when people you know get horrified as, as I do, so I don't want to give out any false messages, but people get horrified. Um, I do a lot of work in China, rescuing moon bears, and I've been to India, and I mean, I've been all over working with animals, and people will go, how do you, excuse me, how do you go to China? That's where they eat uh, cats and dogs. And my response is, well, I've just left, you know, United States where we eat cows and pigs. And I'm not doing it to really be incendiary. I'm really just saying that these farmed animals you know, cows and pigs and lambs, sheep, goats, including birds, you know, chickens and turkeys, for example, ducks, have geese, have very rich emotional lives. I mean, research shows this and that I don't like the fact that some cultures eat dogs and cats, but I also wish that where I live, they'd really cut out cut back and maybe cut out eating cows and pigs. And and the other thing is people go, well, those animals are just dumb. Well, number one, they're not dumb. They're very clever and smart. And number two, there's really no relationship between how smart an animal is as an individual and how much he or she suffers. You know, it's really... it really comes down to what are they feeling. And um, if you really watch cows carefully or other animals when they yank the babies away from them, um, the mothers go crazy. And it's not surprising. I mean, the mother-infant bond is 
if not the strongest, among the strongest bonds that are formed in the animal kingdom. Um, so anyway, that's what I'll be talking about. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I don't and I hope I'm not only preaching to the converted, if you will, but it's a very serious issue, um, the amount of abuse. And then, of course, as you let in, I mean, you know, all the diseases that spread that have become very public um, in this horrific pandemic during which we're living yeah. um, that stem from conditions in, you know, so-called factory farms. Yeah. All right. Well, let's try to get a, a caller involved before we start to near the end of our time. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Mark Beckoff. Hi, yeah. I just had a question about animals playing with humans. You know, I've had, once I was at Fort DeSoto Park and there was a sandhill crane there that I later understood and asked questions about that had been interacting with park officials. And when I was there, she was actually playing with me. Mm-hmm. And I was worried that she was doing that because I didn't want her to become acclimated to playing with a human being because, you know, I'm nice, but maybe the next person might not be so nice. Uh, and I was wondering, are there any studies or any books out about how, you know, given the, the lack of habitat for animals and so forth, how they're interacting more with humans and just sort of uh, getting Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I mean, there's a lot of research. I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a good deal of research on play between humans and dogs and cats and humans. But I love your example because I hang out in the field a lot and I've had a very similar situation with some ducks and you know I really don't know what they want to do I really don't know what they're thinking and feeling Mm -hmm. but they're certainly not afraid of me and I use that as a marker that the animals are relaxed you know like I said before you know that a lot of times especially among wild animals but you'll see the same at a dog park when things get tense play tends to be the first behaviors that drop out of their repertoire they something else is happening that makes them stressed or fearful so i i always take that as an example that they feel relaxed in my presence and you should feel good about that and i don't you know i don't worry that i don't worry that they're going to play with mark or i don't know your name but or they're going to play with you and then they're going to think that all humans are playful um i just take it as a mark that they like me which is nice and, <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah, I, it's nice in this world to know that and you know ostensibly a wild animal um, really likes you, and um, and I've seen that among baby chickens and chick, you know, even adult chickens. That you mm-hmm. know, when they, when they feel good, they'll be playful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I attribute that her behavior, you know, to the staff of the Fort DeSoto Park because they were nurturing her. Apparently, she had a little injury, and they were helping her, and she is now placed, you know. But it started out by me singing to her just because she was by herself, and I was like, "What the what <laughs> right. is this sandhill crane doing out here in a beach park?" And you know she walked with me and got ran next to me. And after a while, I was like, "This is this is kind of scary." <laughs> oh, I mean, I've seen that with when I lived in the mountains. I've seen that with magpies, and um, uh-huh. and and you know, and I've had people tell me this um, too that. You know, I, there was a magpie, so I lived on a, a dirt road. My dogs could run free, and there were a couple of magpies who would follow them up the road, and I'm convinced, <laughs> we're, you know, we're trying funny. to talk to the dog. And right. <laughs> what I like about your example, too, is like in Denver, um, they kill geese. There's killing uh-huh. campaigns by the city because geese are so-called, quote, pests. 
And I've had people say that they've noticed a change in behavior of the geese at the places where they're killed. And, you know, that's not rocket science. The the Mm -hmm. geese are saying, wow, there's something going on here that I don't like. So... Mm -hmm. So again, um, the geese are reading what's going on, you know, the sandhill crane is. And, mm-hmm. and I love your example, too, because birds are social. They're smart, yeah, highly yeah. emotional. So thanks for yeah. asking that question. Yeah, thanks so much for your call. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You bet. So, Dr. Beckoff, we're sort of in the tail end of our time together. But as we've noted a few times, you've uh, published 31 books. And I believe number 32 is On the Horizon, Lives of Dogs in a World Without Humans. Certainly an intriguing title. Tell me a little bit about that book. Well, the book's called Dogs Gone Wild, and it will be published by Princeton University Press. And it's really an analysis of dog-human relationships and dog behavior. Um, You know, what's going to happen as and when humans disappear? And people go, oh, my goodness, (coughs) you just just wrote it last month, huh? And (laughs) we've been thinking about it and started writing it more than two years ago. Um, The basis of the book is to understand how humans have played such a huge role in, say, the evolution of and the domestication of wolves to dogs and then our relationships, you know. So, so for example, people make generalizations about dogs and I always say, be really careful. There's no prototype the dog. Um, You know, there's give or take a billion dogs in the world and it's estimated that maybe 70 or 80 percent are on their own or living, you know, apart from a home, although they may have human contact. So that could be 700 million dogs. So how will, say, a feral dog or a free-ranging dog, or how would a dog who grew up with me and my neighbors um, in the mountains differ in terms of how they would respond if they lost their human compared to, say, a homed and you would hope a pampered dog. So um, we're we're really excited about this book. It was one of the most difficult ones um, that I've written. This is my fourth book I've written with a woman named Jessica Pierce, who has written a lot of excellent books on dogs. So that's basically what we're doing. That's great. And when uh, is there a publishing date established yet, or is that still pending? Oh, it's pending. My, okay. my guess would be we would hope in um, a year or so. I'd say. Okay. Probably summer or early fall 2021, which is really scary. Yeah. (laughs) That we're already almost in 2021. For sure. Thanks for asking, because the book raises a lot of the questions that we're talking about in terms of how will dogs interact with other, you know, wild species when they're on their own? How will dogs interact with other dogs with whom they may never have interacted in the presence of a human? Yeah. Um, How would dogs who have short lives, you know, dogs who have trouble breathing? I mean, there's breeds of dogs who can't mate um, on their own or can't give birth on their own. Own, they clearly would not make it in a world without human um, aid. Yeah. No, it sounds really uh, intriguing. The, the hard part is just going to be waiting for the next year or so to uh, <laughs> uh, dive into it. But uh, we have, I think, just reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, and he has a, a great website, Mark, M-A-R-C, Beckoff, B-E-K-O-F-F.com, with all kinds of information about some of the stuff we've been talking about and all the books and some of the research and any number of other things as well. So, Mark uh, Beckoff, thank you so much for for joining us today on Talking Animals. Really fascinating talk, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to all you people who listened and love your animals. That's right. Love them too much. All right, thank you so much. You bet. 
In a moment, I'll speak with Rob Whitehair, co-founder of the new app called Mammals, providing us an overview of how the app works, its unique virtues, and more. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner. Robert Schimmel, the late, great Robert Schimmel, was a just terrific comedian and a great guy as well. We're going to hear a piece from him now called Punching a Shark in the Nose. It's Robert Schimmel in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. My brother scuba dives. He goes, oh, you know what you do if a shark's bothering you? Bothering? You need to look in a dictionary, pal. Bother. It really bothers me when you shear my legs off at the hips. I find it very bothersome to get back to shore with my torso snapped in half. He said, what you do is you let the shark get up to you and then you punch him in the face. Yeah, and then when that doesn't work, you poke him in the eye with your stump. Punch a shark? What if he wasn't even going to attack you? What if he's just curious that he's swimming by and he goes, Hey, what the f***? What'd you do that for? I thought you were going to attack me. I'm going to now. I was going to let you go, but the other sharks are watching. It doesn't look good now. That was Robert Schimmel, the late great Robert Schimmel, with a piece called Punching a Shark in the Nose, taken from a television appearance many years ago. Now it's time to speak with Rob Whitehair about the new app he co-founded called Mammals. This is Rob Whitehair on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Duncan. How are you? I'm really great. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. What was the impetus for creating this app, uh, Mammals? Well, you know, I had had a wonderful career making wildlife films, and I made films mostly for broadcast, um, and uh, it's been fantastic. But over the years, um, I noticed a few pain points in the industry, and that related to how there's this massive barrier to entry to even begin to do this which is you usually have to buy a very expensive camera and then you're not guaranteed that you're going to get any work at all. Uh, that's one of the pain points. And the other pain point is that younger people don't really watch television anymore. And most of the nature media industry is still heavily embedded in the broadcast uh, world. And so I knew uh, that we needed to sort of disrupt this and not only remove the barrier to entry, but create a platform that was in sort of the realm of what younger people, how younger people are consuming media now. Yeah. So is it, it's aimed obviously at younger people, as you say, but is it also kind of aimed specifically at, at what would otherwise be or still are really aspiring wildlife photographers slash videographers? Yes, absolutely. And I know I say younger people and that's, that's really a, a, a funny thing to, to think about too, because I mean, truthfully, it, it's totally intergenerational and it is 100% aimed at anybody who has an interest in filmmaking, photography, uh, vlogging, uh, live streaming, whatever it may be. Um, basically, we just are re we've removed this barrier and opened it up to anybody in the world, whether you're professional or amateur, to be able to do this. So here's, here's I guess, uh, my question, I guess probably asked truly like a guy who is not a young person. But, um, for example, last summer when people could still travel safely to places, and boy, yeah. we miss those days, uh, I was on a family trip to Churchill. It was too early in the season to see polar bears, but we saw a ton of beluga whales. 
So I took lots of photos and short videos and posted them on my various social media pages, etc. How would things differ in that scenario with the Mammals app? Well, in many respects, when you're just posting photos and that type of thing, it is a very similar experience to what you would get, say, on Instagram. But the one thing that we are doing is really fostering a sense of community um, and giving people a real, like creators who, who put things on mammals are finding that their engagement with that content, the people who are making comments on their posts are not just, wow, that was nice. It was more like asking questions and getting a little deeper into the conversation. Um, and so that's been really a, an interesting thing. And I think that, you know, runs the gamut from anybody who goes on family vacations to even the professional who's, you know, making a, you know, hour long film. The idea that you can get into a community away from all the noise of social media and, and you know, sort of be in this realm with people that are like-minded and are interested in what you're doing. It, it elevates the conversation to something where maybe we can actually make a difference in the natural world. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, if I follow you, this is not unlike a social media platform, but it's, but it's very specific in its intent and what kind of content would be posted there. Yeah, absolutely. It, it has elements of uh, social media, and um, but if, if you really look at this, but what we're trying to do, you could say that it's a very nature-specific YouTube with elements of Instagram and Facebook um, there. Yeah. The other thing is that we've really looked outside of the industry to try and figure out like what are the other industries or platforms that are really working for content creators? And one of those is Twitch, which is the gaming platform, the video gaming platform, where people watch other people play video games. Yeah. So not only do they watch them, but they also support them through tipping and donations and subscriptions. And so that was the other thing for us, is we want to be able to give aspiring people the opportunity to actually make a living doing this. Um, so we're implementing a lot of those tools monetization tools that we found in other um, industries and putting those on mammals as well. So back to my example, if I were uh, on mammals and I had like a, just let's say an amazing a clip of, of beluga whales or a bunch of them and zooming around or whatever and somebody said, wow, that's really cool. I'm going to give you X amount of however that would work. I don't know if there's any sort of random uh, you know, way that this is monetized, but it sounds like the idea is somebody would say, well, I really like what you did, so I'm going to you know, click on this or send you a couple bucks or whatever. Is there any format for how just the, the Twitch-like tipping kind of thing works? Yeah, so we're actually creating um, a, a sort of in-app, it's sort of like a currency, but it's really more just like a digital item. We're calling it seeds. So you can buy seeds up front, and then when you tip somebody, you're basically giving them seeds. Okay. And at the end of the month, the person who is receiving those can cash out um, through us. I and see. It's, uh, it's, it's an interesting concept because for years making films, the one thing that I always had issues with is when the film was over, people would always ask, what can I do? And you'd have to like give them a website or something that they'd have to go to. And by the time they get there and they put their credit card in and all the emotions gone. And so in that height of the emotional moment, when somebody sees something that they love and they want to do something or they want to help, there's going to be the, the option to hit that button right there and be able to do something about it. 
That's great. Well, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, Rob, but that sounds cool that you not only get your images and, and video clips and stuff exposed to people that are very like-minded in their interests and passions, but you can pick up a few bucks and say, hey, uh, turns out uh, I did some good work and uh, I'm getting paid for it now. Absolutely, yes. That's great. So uh, if I understand it, so far, Mammals isn't quite available widespread, like not yet quite on Android. Do I have that right? Or that is correct. We've just now we released the iOS app, and but you can on Android. You still can go on to mammals.com, okay, on the web version, and it works fine on Android right now. But we're busy working on getting it, getting it uh, developed for everything right Great. now. Great. All right. Well, we have reached the end of our time, but Rob, thank you so much. And it's mammals, M-A-M-M-A-L-Z, uh, for those scoring at home. So thanks again, and good luck with the app. Thanks so much, Duncan. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Rob Laura is up next with radioactivity after we hear uh, NPR News headlines. I'll be back again at 2 p.m. doing the uh, All Souls edition of It's the Music. And you can find out all kinds of information about the show and archives, etc. at TalkingAnimals.net. Thanks so much. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. NPR News is next. Thanks so much. See you next Wednesday. <laughs>